Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. It used to be said, in a hushed but matter-of-fact way, that Kalini Hill Park in South Dublin was the haunt of devil worshippers. I remember imagining people gathering in the dark, wearing hooded cloaks and sacrificing animals. In my teenage mind, it was always an unfortunate goat. One friend told me she believed the stories because, she explained, Kalini Hill is one of the seven power points on the planet. It's one of the geographic locations where the Earth's energy is at its strongest. That's why the devil worshippers go there. They're tapping into the power. Understandably, these outlandish stories kept me from Kalini Hill Park for some years. The first time I ventured there was a fine summer's evening in the mid-1980s. The walk to the obelisk at the top of the hill was short but remarkably rewarding. I still remember the first time I took in the near 360-degree panorama for the first time. Dalkey, Dunleary, Dublin Bay, Houth, the city of Dublin, the Dublin Mountains, Brayhead, Kalini Bay and back to Dalkey. It was, and remains, one of the most incredible views I've ever seen. On that evening, a couple of hundred people gathered to listen to Ghetto Blasters play music from a pirate radio station and gaze down into Dublin. We waited for laser beams to shoot up from the city centre in what we were promised would be a spectacular display. Something like a Star Wars film, but accompanied by modern music. After an hour, it gradually dawned on us that nothing was going to happen. One by one, the radios were turned off. No one gave out. This was the 1980s. We were used to disappointment. So instead, we talked and watched as the sun set over the city. And, thankfully before dark, because I knew the devil worshippers would be arriving soon, we made our way back down the hill. For two decades, I looked warily up to Kleine Hill as my life was played out in the area of South Dublin between Dunleary and Bray. It was only when I became Heritage Officer for Dunleary Ratdown County Council that the hill began to regularly feature in my life, because it was part of my job to know its history, to understand the hill. And in so doing, I wanted to see if there was any potential truth behind that PowerPoint theory. Among its unique geology and history were two promising leads, a mineral first discovered there in 1818 called, after the hill, kilonite, was interesting but inconclusive. Another was the very peak of Kalini Hill. In 1742, the obelisk, according to a plaque still visible, was built by the hill's owner, Robert Malpas. In reality, at a time of famine, Malpas provided food to the poor and starving in return for their labour to build the iconic structure. In 1887, the hill was sold, for a handsome sum, to a local committee celebrating Queen Victoria's Jubilee anniversary. It was opened as a public park by Prince Albert Victor of Wales, grandson of Queen Victoria. Certainly no shortage of power symbols there. But for me, it was the very site on which the obelisk was built that was most interesting. The nearby Dublin mountains have the largest concentration of Irish megalithic tombs outside of Sligo and Meath. But for me, no other site commands such breathtaking views. If I'd been an ancient king, I definitely would have wanted to have been buried on Kilini Hill. And the ground it is built upon looks to me as though it has been built on before. To my eye, 
there appears to be a distinct mound, clearly reminiscent of a burial tomb. But without excavations, there were limited inquiries that I could carry out, and my quest ended in a dead end. In recent years, my wife and I have taken our dog for walks in the hill. Our mutt, best described by a passing child as a squirrel dog, seems a different species to the exotic Kalini purebreds. On these walks, thoughts about PowerPoints, that the hill is located in the wealthiest area of Ireland, and that the very dogs appear as canine expressions of wealth, of power, coalesce. Sometimes it looks as though it's the dogs who've ownership of the hill, running without leads, bounding as beasts on the Serengeti. Suspiciously, our dog is never happier than when he is on the hill. And maybe, I sometimes think, it's not the owners bringing their dogs, but the dogs who bring their owners to the hill to tap into its latent power. Since I started going to Kalini Hill, I've sat on its granite outcrops, looked out over those views and found consolation in even the bleakest of scenarios being played out around me. And each time I've left renewed, energised, reinvigorated. And every time I do, I think of that old friend of mine from nearly 40 years ago and of her theory that Kalini Hill is one of the PowerPoints of the planet. That old hay barn I knew in my youth, the stars sailed across its galvanised roof. The moonlight leaked into its open sides and spilled on the deck of hay and on the face of the man who lay there, a man I well remember. He used to tell me things, how the wind always got into that barn, made the irons rattle and creak and sometimes give off alarming knocks, as though about to fall asunder it was only held fast at the last second by one staunch rivet. He was a tramp who each summer sloped by our farmyard and for a few shillings helped at haymaking and then disinclined to work much any more but knowing where he'd find the doss he bunked in the hay barn. I still sometimes fall into a sort of trance and think of him I see his sheepdog lying beside him on the hay. It startles, its ears cock. It looks at him, then settles again. When darkness first sets in, he sees the great bear constellation in the north, above Rampark Field. Night goes on. The stars wheel around in the vault. Great bear holds its steady gaze. Great Bear is his night-awake companion. A car passes along the road below the high haggard wall. It makes such a fuss, throwing its lights up into the boughs of trees and along the grooved ceiling of the barn. Then across the hills it beams and off into the high sky towards infinity. Cars at night he finds reassuring but also disconcerting. 
other souls abroad in the world. There's sudden noise of a door slamming in the dwelling house above. Lowing sounds too sometimes from the cows in the byre. Sounds of hoofs stamping against the concrete floor on the cubicles. And out there in the grass, scraping presences. He lays a mat of jute bags between his clothes and the hay's prickly thistles. He keeps the ends of his trousers outside his Wellington boots and tied with baling twine so the trousers' legs can't ride over the boots and so the rats can't crawl inside. He knows a tramp that had a rat slither down inside his Wellington and imprisoned there snapped off a toe. He knows another tramp who one icy night when the hay bench was hard as metal got a raging rush of blood for a woman of his past to fall asleep with a memory on his lips and awake badly bitten by frost. I'm a poor sleeper, he'd say. If a fella has to sleep in a hay barn often as he, surely it isn't asking too much to be able to sleep. Night comes at you from all sides, he'd say. There are ghosts out around farm buildings after nightfall, clattering sticks against buckets in the wind. They are ghosts of the dead who once walked up and down the road, ghosts of those who once built the high walls and planted the cypress saplings, now gnarled trees enclosing the haggard. Ghosts of men with whom he once laboured during haymaking times, John Z, the ex-miner from the local coal mines, and Ted, the horse gambler from East Limerick. There's those enjoy bunking outdoors, those that has choice. If I had choice, I'd bunk in a castle. He is no longer around, long gone. Spent his final days in a county home. Until, in a deep dream at last, there came a night when ambulance lights shone in through his county home window. And his hay barn lifted anchor and sailed across the galaxies. Joan can be your friend, Mam said, and help you settle in. I knew Joan because she lived near my granny's house where we were staying. The round, soft teacher, Miss Neil, put Joan and me sitting together beside a clunking old radiator. And the class of about 30 girls looked over at me, the new girl. But one girl sitting behind us was not looking. She was drawing. Her thick hair was dark as ink and her skin had an even tan, the kind my sun-worshipper parents envied. Who's she? Oh, that's just Freya, Joan said. Freya heard her name, looked up and smiled. 
We practised our letters and in the lunch hall, I got to sit beside Freya. She had peanut butter sandwiches like a girl in an American film and she was wearing a bottle green pinafore from her old school in Guyana. She was a giggler and when we went to the cloakroom, she shared her pink bubblegum and we linked arms. That Christmas, I asked Santa to bring me a violin. A violin, Dad said. What put that idea into your head? I don't know. On Christmas morning, there was a violin case. And when I lifted the lid, the scent of rosin was familiar. I took out the violin and drew rosin up and down the bow. How did you know how to do that? Dad asked. I put the violin under my chin and drew the bow across the strings, but it scraped and shrieked, not like what I'd imagined at all. Mam said, the head nun, Mother Benedict, will teach you. The school has a great name for teaching music. And so it began. Head down, arm up. She made me stand on a Brentwood chair so I could learn how to balance and play at the same time. Incensed with my scraping and squeaking, Mother Benedict, or Benny as we called her, pulled the violin and bow from me to demonstrate. She had a hairy face and hands, but when she played, her arm was a wing. Freya always waited for me in the cloakroom, with a hug that stopped the shaking in my body. No one else had asked about the country she came from, but on our way to the bus stop, she told me stories about a shell beach and the hordes of turtles nesting there, and a high waterfall that made rainbows. And she taught me a song from Guyana about a blue and red bird going chirp, chirp, chirp. Then one day she was out sick, and at lunchtime the rest of the class surrounded me in the yard. A girl with a snub nose and short brown hair, whose name I didn't know, said, What has O'Handlin been up to now? And immediately I recognised that over time a case had been built against me and that my list of offences was long. I had made a dreadful error. I had ignored them. If I had chosen Joan, that would have been okay. But I had chosen... Oh, that's just Freya. Sit beside me, the girl with the short hair said, her chin out. And so I did. When Freya returned a week later... I had no words to explain why I had abandoned her. A month later, Freya and I met in the toilets, green cubicle doors, the smell of vim. But we began to chat like we used to. She was swinging out of the towel rail when it came away from the wall. There was such horror on her face when she looked at the broken rail, then at me. Don't tell. Please, please don't tell. I won't, I said, I promise. She kissed me then, hot, wet kisses on my cheek, peanuts on her breath, sandalwood in her hair. The whole primary school was kept in, standing on rows of steps that the choir used. No one is leaving until one of you tells me who is the girl who wantonly destroyed school property in the toilets. Benny walked up and down, ranting as the winter light faded and rain drummed on the roof. I didn't dare look at Freya three rows down, though I knew she was sweating, shivering and burning like me. 
as I imagined the thick hands of the nun slapping her legs, those same hands that could play Bach on piano and violin. When it was almost dark, she had to let us go. And a while later, I moved to another school beside our new house. I have that child's violin still. The bridge is broken, but when I lift the lid, the scent of rosin brings me there. The ache for what could have been. Then I hear Freya giggle. You know, I used to think this story was about me. But think of Freya from Guyana, sitting alone at lunchtime in her green pinafore. I was transfixed by the photograph in the paper. 105 metres below ground in Arsenalna metro station in Kiev, people were sitting and lying on duvets and improvised seating against the walls. The lesser details caught my eye. Laptop cables, a tiny kitten, yoga mats. Children had their backs to the camera, absorbed in something between them, and a woman was wearing a winter jacket similar to mine. Of the many images I have seen since the war in Ukraine began, this one stayed with me, a sense of the troublingly familiar, although I couldn't say why. It took a moment to make the connection with Huri. In the late 1980s, my husband and I moved to the United Arab Emirates, economic migrants from the worldwide recession. Huri worked in the radiology department of Tawam Hospital with me, a Lebanese-Armenian who had come to Abu Dhabi, escaping troubles of her own. Slight, pale-skinned, dark-haired, wearing old-fashioned horn-rimmed glasses that magnified her brown eyes, she was a force of nature. The colleague everyone wanted on their shift, a native Arabic speaker and fluent in several languages, capable, kind, quick to laugh and occasionally dismissive. I sometimes caught her watching her European peers with the same look of pitying remove that my Northern Irish friends gave me whenever I offered a Southerner's opinion on the Troubles. For Huri, the twin impostors of triumph and disaster were not twins at all, but bellwethers of very different standing. Triumphalism in any guise was the equivalent of thumbing your nose at the gods, and disaster was not only something possible, it was to be expected. Our European self-assurance amused her. Occasionally it annoyed her, Before I was to make a short trip home to Ireland, she told me she had dreamt my plane was going to crash and asked me if I really wanted to fly. I went anyway. One afternoon at work, a mouse darted across the floor. Everyone in the room shrank against the walls, but Huri watched it run around in circles before pouncing on it like a cat. With one quick counter-turn of both hands, she broke its neck and it hung limply from her fingers. The response from colleagues was a mix of horror, disgust and awe, and on my part, curiosity. Where did you learn to do that? I asked her. She just shrugged 
and went to dispose of the dead mouse. But when I got to know her better, she told me. In 1978, during the Lebanese Civil War, Houri and her family spent 15 days hiding from artillery fire in the basement of their apartment block in Beirut. Between shellings, they came up to salvage what they could and scrounge for food. The basement was overrun with rats and mice, and everybody in hiding became adept at killing them. Over time, Huri and I became friends, and on her days off, she sometimes asked me to lunch at her quarters in the single women's compound. The accommodation consisted of wooden huts with two small bedrooms, a tiny kitchen, a living room and a bathroom. There were shag pile carpets everywhere and air conditioners the size of a fridge, keeping the huts cool in the 40 degree heat. They made a noise like small aircraft taking off and dripped constantly onto the dust outside. On this particular day, an unfamiliar sound cut through the drone of the air conditioners. From Hoori's open door came the sound of shrill screaming, but there was no trace of her inside. I found her in the bathroom, pressed against the wall and rigid with fear. The look on her face was so pathetically terrified that I expected to see signs of a break-in or some kind of violence. She pointed to the bath. A large Blata orientalis cockroach had come up through the plug hole, its long feelers tracking the surface of the enamel. I threw a towel over it and brought it outside. My friend, the war survivor and rodent killer, had a pathological fear of cockroaches. Hoori settled in America, where she married and brought her mother and sister to join her. Her children are as much American as they are Lebanese and Armenian, and looking at the photographs in the paper, I wonder what goes through Hoori's mind as stateless Ukrainians arrive in her adoptive country. Hoori and I are not in touch that often anymore, but I am certain she will extend them the warmest of welcomes. ran. How still he must have been, my Uncle Pat, to capture trout with his bare hand in the brown river that runs, no, that ran, near Derendangan, Clunin, home. All gone, all forestry, all pine.
I recently published my memoir and while I was writing it, I was trying to come up with different ways of telling the story, which is a difficult story to tell. And this piece sort of came from it. And I thought this is actually this is actually a standalone piece. It doesn't belong in the book. And it's called Teenager. She has plain brown hair and weighs 11 stone, which she finds repulsive. In her diaries, poetry and drawings, and over blue pick pen swirls of horses' manes, she has written over and over lists of things she must achieve. Lose weight, stop eating, get a boyfriend, be interesting. Nothing is enough, nothing she can offer is enough, nothing she has to give is enough. She helps, she is afraid, she wants to be useful. She hovers, she hopes, she writes gratitude lists. She apologises, she says sorry, she excuses herself. Playing as a child, she had to be urged by adults to take part. One time, a friend's mother overheard her talking to a doll, as if the doll was a real baby. She and the friend's mother made sudden, brief eye contact as the mother smiled her way up the stairs of her home. Shame stung and suffocated, and although she continued playing in that house, she would never let go to that extent again. She would never lose control like that again. And then the time came for parents to stop organising playdates. And then the time came for street playing to stop. And although she didn't know it then, one summer day she called in to neighbours for the last time. She eventually played her last play in the green, cycled her last cycle home. She makes up fake social activities, so she doesn't look like a loser, even though she isn't a loser and isn't even sure what a loser is anyway. She befriends the outcasts, the unpopular, the unwanted, the laughed at, the excluded. She goes on walks with them at lunchtime and feels sorry for them, like she is a charity worker and also grateful, so grateful for them. Her heart aches with empathy and she wishes she wasn't so soft, such a pushover, so weak. She wishes she had a bit of the edge and harshness some of the cool girls have, some of their bite. She will never have their bite. She does have bite. She doesn't realise she has bite. She will get bite eventually. She relinquishes this desire and tries to forge her own identity, but finds it hard to know who she is. She has never gotten to know herself. She doesn't know how to begin. The who of her has never been heard. The sight of her has never been seen. She maintains a facade that keeps her safe. She orchestrates, she shows off, she humble brags, she overachieves, she pretends, and she aches, she aches, and she works hard, she does her best, she is doing her best and always feels that she is doing her worst. She is funny and puts herself down, but in a funny way, so it's okay. She carries inexplicable guilt and the weight of it takes the lightness out of her eyes. She takes the blame for unearned misdemeanours in order to alleviate this guilt. She doesn't know why she does that. Her friends are baffled so she makes out like she is a martyr and sacrificing herself and no one can say anything then. She is privileged and she knows she is. She carries the guilt. She is soft and sensitive and she watches, watches, watches. Her intuition is deep and deft but she doesn't know it yet. Can't separate out sensitivity and intuition. She has friends. She doesn't trust the friendships. She doesn't know what friendship is. At lunch in school she asks her group, What are we doing at the weekend? And someone replies, who's we? And she doesn't say another thing, doesn't try again to say another thing. She watches others. She takes her cues. She knows she is a leader but follows anyway. She knows she is strong but pretends to be weak, steps behind and into shadows out of fear of light, out of fear of her own light, for fear of what the power of it could do. 
She is aware somewhere that all of this fragmentation and insecurity is normal, just normal. And she knows that many others have it far, far worse. But everywhere she looks, she is the odd one, the soft one, the silly one, the stupid one. She is far from stupid. Strokestown, my town. Steeped in your rushes and bogs, a town to pass through on the way to the west, your big house stands alongside the new famine museum. Strokestown, you shaped me, giving me the run of your wide streets, my young legs sweeping from your bawn gates to the inkwells of Skullwurra, your long incline to the turn of Farn the perfect runway for your westward fleet of Scania trucks. My town, fashioned by a straight rule, home to processions, confessions, fair days, show days, holy days, the witness to all my firsts. Kiss, fall, medal, loss. First place to leave, first place to miss. Up the town from Tanner's turn, I'm four years old, my milk can spilling as I roll down into your hollow where Bernie Feeney leans forever over his farm gate. Arm in a sling puts a short halt to the schoolyard hopscotch among your melody of McCormack, McDermott, McPhillips and McHugh. Out of town I cycle at 17 with phrases of Virgil, Kavanagh and Parnell, gleanings from Morahan's printing press lilting from Thady's on Flade, jigs trebled on the stage in the magnet, embroidered with threads from Dondlins, taps and laces and chevlons, Connolly's shiny buttons and hemlines refashioned in Molly Larkin's smoke-filled room. On days the Rossies win, John McManus pours his smile across his butcher's block, the long length of his cigarette ash between his lips, a mesmerising trick just like the zipline of money whizzing across the ceiling of Jimmy Henry's hardware store, and Nell Flaherty's drake that floats away over Anthony Burns' bar. Sweetness lingers in the paper-coned bonbons from O'Neill's, the promise of a barley stick from Sheehan's, endless ham sliced across Green's counter and sleeves of scallions and ribbons of rhubarb, fresh from Pat Collins's garden. In Bernard Chapman's mural, Paddy Riley sits alongside Percy French. He'll never make it back to Bally James Duff. Never leaving you, Strokestown. Never leaving me. On this morning's programme, we heard The Powers of Killiney Hill by Tim Carey. Hay Barn by Leo Cullen. New Girl was by Lanny O'Hanlon. Keeve to Beirut by Martine Madden. River Ran, a poem by Vincent Woods. Teenager 
was by Mia Doring. And Strokestown, My Town, the 2021 Poetry Town poem for Strokestown by Noel Linsky. The music on the programme was The Power and the Glory by Horselips. El Condor Passa, performed by the Finns from past a past Sunday Miscellany live at the Civic Theatre in Tala. Bach's Violin Partita No. 3 in E, Third Movement, played by Hilary Hahn. Escape was by Ibrahim Malouf. Lament for Owen Rowe O'Neill, Captain O'Kane, The Wounded Hazar, was played by Tom O'Farrell. And finally, Teardrop by Massive Attack. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer of the programme is Sarah Binchy. For more about it and other RTE arts and culture programmes, have a look at the website rte.ie slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.